Welcome to the World of Intelligence, a podcast for you to discover the latest analysis of global military and security trends within the open source defense intelligence community. Now onto the episode with your host, Harry Kemsley. Hello, and welcome to this edition of World of Intelligence by Jane's. Hello, Sean, my co-conspirator. Thanks for joining me again. Hi, Harry. Good to be here, as always. As always. Sean, I thought today we might extend from a recent podcast we did around the commercial use of open source intelligence, where we talked about how that might be used in industry, and actually stretch that now into uh, economic and financial intelligence and how that can be used in the national security arena as well. Um, particularly going to look at the economic statecraft intelligence, and we'll talk a bit more about what that means later as one of the key elements of our open source intelligence toolbox. Now, many of us will be aware of the alleged or so-called great power competition going on with China, arguably, and in some people's minds, uh, the thought that that might be considered a new Cold War. But one aspect of that is the use of state activity through the form of business transactions, in quotes, no strings attached financial aid that uh, investment and generous contract terms might be given to certain countries for things like infrastructure projects, for example. And there are, of course, potentially more than one interpretation and implications of those for uh, national security. So we're going to look at that today from an open source lens. We have with us an expert guest, Claire Chu. Hello, Claire. Hi, thanks for having me, Harry. Thanks for coming, Claire. Now, for those that don't know Claire, there are very few people in the world that don't seem to be following you on Twitter and the like and your social media uh, accounts, Claire. Claire is a senior China analyst with Jane's as part of the Intel Track team, which examines the economic statecraft activities of China and Russia. She specializes in the geopolitical and the national security implications of China's global economic activity. She launched a Belt and Road Monitor in 2017, which provides a comprehensive biweekly overview of China's overseas trade, investment activities and policy developments. She previously held research roles at think tanks, including the Mercator Institute of China uh, Studies in Berlin, the Project 2049 Institute in Arlington and the Center for the National Interest in Washington, D.C. She's also worked on rule of law and governance issues at the Congressional Executive Commission on China and at Human Rights Watch. Claire has also testified before the U.S. House of Representatives and her commentary has been featured in major media outlets in the United States, in Europe and Asia. Claire, welcome. It's great to have you here. Thanks again. Looking forward to it. All right. So, as always, Sean, let's get started to make sure the listener knows that when we talk about open source information and the intelligence we can derive from it, OSINT, open source intelligence, they know that we're talking about the same thing as they are. So how would you define for us, Sean, open source intelligence? Yeah, thanks, Harry. As I've said previously, actually, but but always worth reiterating. And I think my own views and James's views actually uh, coincide perfectly on this, is that for us, OSINT has four primary components. The first of which has got to be it's derived from information that's freely or commercially available to all. So you don't have to, to have you know clandestine techniques, tactics and procedures to actually get hold of it. The layperson on the street should be able to get access to it. 
the second part of that is linked in that it has to be derived from legal and, as we've previously talked about, ethical sources and techniques. So we're not talking about getting into the dark web or having a false persona or, or that sort of thing. This has got to be open and, and above board. And then the last two really are applied to any open source intelligence and well, any intelligence uh, specialization, actually. And that's it's got to be applied to a specific problem set or requirement. So you've got to be trying to answer a question as set. And it has to add value, uh, the so what, as I always call it. Very good. Thank you, Sean. So, Claire, let's turn to economic and financial intelligence and specifically the economic statecraft piece. How would you define that? And then when we've done that, let's move on to the utility of that as an open source intelligence domain. How would you define economic statecraft? Economic statecraft, especially as it pertains to China, um, can be used to describe how Chinese's economic and financial activity, including ostensibly commercial activities, undertaken by the private sector to support state goals, um, strategic aims, and other objectives that may or may not be profit-seeking or commercial in nature. Okay, so how does that, in your mind, relate, generally speaking, to national security. Why should a national security analyst be interested and concerned about what they might be able to find in statecraft intelligence? Again, using China as my primary example, commercial actors can operate in ways that are conducive to state strategic interests. And that means companies can link corporate activities with CCP policy frameworks. Um, A lot of these companies, whether they're private or public, are ultimately controlled or controllable by the government under national laws and regulations. That means that the party state is embedded in commercial decision-making processes, and that ultimately can affect foreign joint venture partners, that can affect uh, foreign governments, are beneficiaries of Chinese aid or Chinese projects. Um, And it's worth understanding how and why a lot of these actors act the way that they do. Why are they pursuing certain projects? Who is involved? And what are the potential risk implications? So you're talking about the apparent motivations being commercial, and yet it could be construed that the motivations might be more about a more state-level purpose. Is that what you're saying? Yes. And we see this sometimes with projects that don't seem to be particularly profitable. We've seen certain companies go into Pacific islands and offer large sums of money for tracts of land that they're saying are meant for fishing. But we're also told that there aren't there's a lot of fishing to be had in those same waters. We're seeing companies go into other parts of the world and saying that they're developing certain mining uh, mining capabilities there. But we're also told that there are a lot of conflicts and that the projects, again, are not profitable in nature. So why are the companies there? Sometimes it goes both ways. I'm not saying that every company pursues projects overseas for state to achieve state goals. Sometimes companies will go overseas as on an entrepreneurial mission, and they are seeking to achieve some commercial some commercial profit as well. But at the same time, if you're a small company and you're able to go to a new market and launch a successful project, then in turn, you can go back to the Chinese government and ask for greater funding. You can ask for more state-backed support. And if you're not successful in your overseas ventures, then perhaps that doesn't happen. It, it goes both ways. Right. Got it. Now, I've mentioned earlier that we're going to look at it through the prism of national security because that's our primary focus on this conversation. But it's fair to say, isn't it, that uh, commercial organizations would also have interest in the activities of state-led or state-funded, state-governed commercial bodies out of China and Russia as well, because that might create an unreasonable competitive playing field for them. 
Absolutely. And it's interesting to look into the backgrounds of some of these actors overseas, which is why uh, my team at IntelTrack at Jane's spends a lot of time mapping out ownership networks, understanding beneficial right. ownership structures, and trying to understand exactly who these actors are. Sometimes we have players that, again, are ostensibly commercial in nature, and then you track back and back and back, you do a path to the top research, and you realize that they are ultimately being funded by certain government initiatives or through um, state-backed actors. And this happens also in the financial space where there are companies, there are private equity firms. And if you do the research and you can realize that some of the funding is coming from, again, state funds and Chinese state funds that ultimately are seeking to develop certain digital technologies. Um, and there are certain goals that perhaps can be perceived as risky by certain audiences, perhaps not as risky by others, but should at least be known and taken as part of the calculation was whether or not to engage with these actors or receive funding or to partner together. Yeah, now I, I want to come on in just a second. You mentioned the idea of research into this and how you go through the various layers to get to perhaps the ground truth. Sean, let me just come to you first, though, to talk about the national security value of this kind of intelligence, because it's not one, to be honest with you, that in my experience, I saw a great deal of. OK, it's been a while since I was anywhere close to national intelligence bodies on the customer side. But anyway, your view of how useful this would have been or is now for you in the intelligence world? Yeah, well, I mean, we've always followed an acronym, haven't we? DIME, which is uh, Diplomacy, Information, Military and Economic Levers of, of National Power. And we spend a lot of time focusing on the first three, but not necessarily in the past mm. on, the, on, on the final one. It's been there Absolutely. and there's been an awareness, but it's kind of been left alone. Now, that's not strictly clear in all cases. But for example, within defense intelligence, I think it's only 10 years ago that they started getting in financial analysts to actually start looking at that. For me, though, and so so it is starting to percolate. But I think the real value of the economic side of things is that you'll have heard me talking about the threat, the threat matrix, threat equals capability plus intent plus opportunity. And I think in particular, if you're looking at the economy of, of a country or, a, or an organization, by understanding its economics, you can look at actually what it's trying to achieve. So the intent, which is one of the areas which is quite uh, demanding for the intelligence community. So I think there's real potential there. You know, we have started looking at it, but probably on a, a on a more sort of tactical basis. So, you know, mm. we've always done the illicit, the illicit finances for, you know, sanctions breaking to sort of monitor that. Is that happening for finance, terrorism, finances, etc.? But I think the first time I came across it in any real sort of strength in terms of looking at it as a leverage of uh, a lever of a national power was um, there was a task force set up in Afghanistan called Task Force Shafafiat. And that was set up predominantly with the US, but to track the money that was the huge amounts of aid and money that was putting in, being put into Afghanistan and just seemingly disappear. So, you know, the levels of, of national power were right. OK, we need to develop the economy. We need to help the uh, Afghan national forces to develop themselves and the institutions. And this is what we're going to do with all the money, which would just then disappear. Yeah. And it was a really hard one to actually work out. So, so the intent thing. And, you know, what is happening with your hard earned money, I think, is is a really important one as well. Yeah, I'd like to come back to that point in a moment about how we might use this kind of intelligence. But I'm, I guess one of the problems with this, Claire, is that actually a lot of what you're seeing is construed as perfectly above board commercial activity. And it's an interpretation that we have to place on it to ensure that we understand what the potential implications might be for national security. And clearly, an interpretation is a matter of uh, judgment and expertise. So for me, I think we might come back to this in a minute, but one of the problems with 
this kind of economic statecraft is it might be happening all around you. You just haven't thought about the implications when you start to look at it more holistically. There are 20 transactions happening in your district and you've only seen one tactically. You may not fully appreciate the strategic endeavour that's underway, but maybe we'll come back to that later. Claire, help us understand how you do what you do. So we've talked about the fact that we're tracking transactions by commercial organisations. You mentioned earlier that you go back and back higher and higher up the stack until perhaps you're getting to a, a government or state level uh, organization. How do you do that in the open source environment? What's your uh, approach? Our team of analysts use publicly available information to track Chinese economic activity overseas, um, but also to map out all the key players, understand who they are, their ownership networks and affiliations, and also understand what China's geopolitical and strategic interests are. And we do that by looking at licit systems of trade, investment, finance, transport, which often leave a digital trail that we can trace. And what is fun sometimes about working in this space is that Chinese companies that are going overseas are very proud of this. You know, these are these are successes. Um, a lot of times, companies, even companies that work in slightly sh- more shadowy spaces or um, in spaces that are subject to a lot of criticism overseas, are still happy to share this information online. This is not all taking place in the shadows. Um, it's quite different than follow the money type of work. It's different from tracking money laundering or illicit finance because we're working with groups that are, again, commercial in nature um, or appear to be commercial in nature. And it's a combination of understanding intent, understanding government interest, strategic planning, understanding some of the geopolitical realities on the ground, and also understanding what host countries are interested in out of these interactions and some of the pressures and obstacles that they're facing that we're able to get to the bottom of, you know, what does this transaction mean? Um, what are some of their patterns and trends we've seen in this space? And once again, back to the bottom line, does this pose national security risk to this country or to the U.S. or any other um, potential partners or allies? So it sounds a little bit like hiding in uh, plain sight. And I'm wondering whether if a nation, it doesn't matter which nation, was unaware of the amount of activity going on by apparently commercial organizations, they would be unaware of the potential implications of that. And Sean, I'm thinking that if you brought that together with other forms of intelligence, you might actually start to see a picture that you might otherwise miss. But for the lack of the understanding of all these different commercial organizations and how they link to the policies, you know, the Belt and Road policy, for example, Claire, which I know you know a great deal. I'm wondering, how, how do we bring this together? Because, again, it's been a while since I've been close to a, a live commercial, excuse me, classified agency. But it didn't strike me 10 years ago, 12 years ago, this was a big topic of conversation. And maybe that'll come back to you with that in a clip, second, Claire, to find out how much you think this is getting traction in the agencies you talk to. But Sean, what's your thoughts? Well, I, I certainly think 10 years ago, there, there was work happening in this area. But as I mentioned before, more on the illicit and more specialist stuff, you know, special forces type activities. But, but I think it has certainly uh, in the last you know, maybe five years, maybe more, been looked at through, from the lens. And, and there are so many different applications now, and and it is considered, definitely. I mean, just, just look at the, the most contemporary right now, Russia. And really, the exam question in terms of Russia is its sustainability. How easy is it going to be to sustain its force levels and its economy for its people, which has got to have a direct impact on, you know, whether it manages to keep the, the campaign in, in Ukraine going or whether it actually loses. But there's a lot more than that as well. And and when you're looking at the strategic level of intelligence, and you mentioned the, the Belt and Road, and Claire will know far more than I will. But, you know, when you see China, basically Chinese bases, ports, facilities being set up in Djibouti and Sri Lanka, 
you know, ostensibly on a commercial basis, but you know that they're going to be or could be used for military capability. So you can you can do exactly the same sort of analysis on that type of organisation in terms of a, a sorry structure to see you know what are its capabilities. I think you can also get into the supply chain, which is again big business now. You really got to understand where your supplies are coming from, and in the in the community, we've not been necessarily particularly good at that. You know, and again, China is the great example, and. You know, we in the UK and I think as much in the US as well are, are very suspicious of Huawei. You know, it's a commercial comms company, but it does a lot more than that, we think. Um, yeah. So there's that side of things as well. So so I think to answer your question, I think we've always considered it. But I think as we've got into the, if you want to call it the post-terrorism world, it's not post-terrorism, but, but as we're focusing more on, on, on uh, big state actors now, I think yeah. it's becoming more prominent. Claire, you you are working across a range of different organisations, I know, as our customers with Jane's Intel truck. To what extent do you feel it is being recognised now as a valuable additional source of intelligence to blend with others to come up with a view that's perhaps not otherwise visible to the, uh, the naked eye, as it were? Well, I agree with Sean that in the past five years, we've really seen an emergence of interest and focus on economic statecraft, where commercial diplomacy as a field of study, um, as something that the U.S. government and other governments should be aware of and should build capabilities um, to understand. And, you know, in the past five years, we've really seen introduction of a whole government approach that's brought together concerns like human rights, trade and investment, um, even finite global capital flows into the national security fold. And with general, I would say bipartisan consensus for the first time. And also around that time was when Made in China 2025 was publicly introduced. As some might be familiar with, um, Made in China 2025 was an initiative that the Chinese government launched in order to introduce or in order to hasten indigenous innovation and manufacturing. And when that happened, we saw, especially in, in the West, an emergence of think pieces, of uh, public discussion about the intersection of national security and commercial business interests, as well as with tech and innovation, industrialization. Um, and so it's been a really exciting time to be in this space. And I think people are increasingly understanding that economics does not exist independently of national security or of geopolitics. Um, it's very much a piece of the puzzle. And again, as Sean mentioned, with what's happening in Ukraine and Russia, I think a lot of countries are realizing that, once again, this is a capability that we really need to build up. We really need to build talent pipeline to understand, because increasingly, as warfare becomes potentially less kinetic, especially looking at China, maybe Taiwan, potential conflict there, we're going to be looking at a very different playing field. And it's going to be one that has economics and finance at the forefront. Yeah. Let me um, move us on then to where you've seen the utility of this kind of intelligence, Claire, from from your experience. But as you're, as you're collecting your thoughts on that, something that occurs to me, Sean, is I wonder if we were to be able to look through a capability like Intel Track and see a picture that otherwise isn't available to us, that we haven't considered, whether we'd actually be horrified that there may actually be a huge amount of, quote, economic statecraft going on in our own backyards. I mean, I watch with interest, the development of this capability as it now starts to blossom and fuse with other intelligences. As we said, that's probably where the picture's going to become clearest. But I almost wonder whether we're going to find some, quote, really horrific stories about what's been going on maybe for years. Uh, we've been blissfully unaware. I think that's 100% true, Harry. I think we already are realising this. And I go back to my example of supply chain and how if you do start looking at and again open source uh, can do this quite easily 
about how some of the technology is transferred, has been transferred and is still being transferred from Western countries to fuel the Russian war machine. Some of the components and one of the good ways of identifying those is, is to, and I understand what you're saying, Glenn, in terms of not specifically tracking the money, but if you can see where the economic flow and the economic dependencies and relationships are, it doesn't take long to work out that inadvertently, because people haven't been looking at this, you know, there are there are many Western nations who are probably still, certainly at the start of the war, who are actually fueling the Russian campaign. I do do want to pick up on that point about supply chain. I suspect you could probably find for us, Claire, examples of where even at the mining of certain ores and special um, metals and so on out of the ground, if they were in the wrong hands, could introduce all kinds of strategic risks for supply chains. But I'm not going to let that one distract okay. us yet. We'll come back to that one later. So let's let's talk about use cases then. So we've talked about more or less what this topic is about. We've talked about the kind of techniques that we can use and so on. But what are the use cases you've seen, Claire, that are the most obvious and perhaps less obvious use cases we could have for an understanding of this intelligence of economic statecraft? Sure. To answer that, I think I need to back up a little bit and explain how or what exactly we track every day, what we look at, the information that my team at IntelTrack has. Um, the foundation of all of it is transactions, which is hand cold every day. Um, we seek to capture all of China as well as Russia's overseas economic activities. And that means mergers, acquisitions, uh, foreign direct investments, contracts, subcontracts, loans and grants, even aid and donations. Um, and we try to be as thorough as possible to really get the full picture. That means we also track things like media partnerships. We track everything from the beginning, starting with verbal pledges, letters of intent, feasibility, environmental studies, all the way to potential delays, cancellations, and other obstacles or even protests that might be affecting a project. So I would say that we have very full pictures of this type of engagement on the ground, um, how what it looks like in terms of engagement with local communities sometimes, local governments, and we can help paint a picture of not just what is China doing, how are they doing it, um, who are the actors involved, are certain actors more involved in certain regions, is there a reason? Uh, for example, recently noticed that Huawei is making a big business push in the Middle East, and we saw many transactions with certain companies with Huawei involved. Um, there are certain technologies that Huawei is seeking to push, and they really see a geopolitical opportunity there right now to build a new market, especially with COVID and um, after COVID. And yeah. some might say, and with increasing backlash from certain other countries as well, that are starting to look into rip and replace programs. And so we've had questions in the past, even just from our analysts, about what can we look at all Chinese tech investments in Israel from 2015 onward? You know, can we uh, look at which of those are dual use and are, are do have dual use capabilities? And how do we ascertain that? Can we look at the actors involved? Do we look at the type of technology? Do we, you know, look at the financing parties to understand, you know, what is intended to be dual use and what is not? Or we could look at, for example, all Chinese activity in Guadar, which is near the Guadar deep sea port, and I try to understand. So we know publicly that there is a port that's been built, but layered with all this information, we see that they also donated a hospital. You know, to try the Chinese government finance a hospital, build it. We've seen that the Chinese government has awarded several follow-on contracts. Chinese companies. We're seeing that Chinese private security companies are potentially moving into that area and you know being involved. And we're also seeing that the Chinese government has helped fund a vocational institute to train local employees to help sustain the Guadalajara port operations long after Chinese workers have left. 
And so then we start to paint a bigger picture of, you know, what is the secu- the national security exposure, you know, um, mm-hmm. with the Guadalajara port in operation, what is the potential you know, long-term business planning for the companies that are involved, and also what how could this potentially change the local landscape with the number of workers that are now living there with on the physical assets, but also the Chinese nationals that are there, but also with local populations that are now comfortable with Chinese technical standards, Chinese mm-hmm. language, Chinese norms, and are likely going to be helping this project flourish for, again, years and years to come. Yeah, absolutely fascinating. And uh, sadly, we are going to run out of time. But as, as, as I often hear myself saying, Sean, we'll have to get Claire back and uh, we'll do some more of this later. So, Sean, your thoughts, your final thoughts then in terms of uh, use cases, you've heard a fair amount from Claire there about how we do what we do with uh, economic and financial intelligence around statecraft uh, and some use case examples as well. What are your final thoughts in terms of the intelligence value of this type of intelligence? Um, you've heard me say this before, uh, Harry, that, you know, uh, the word all source or the phrase all source intelligence easily trips off the tongue, but we don't really do it. We do multi-source intelligence. For this, for, for me, I think the economic side is is something that, you know, we have considered in the, at the strategic level in the past, but I think it's becoming f- into far more focus now because people are starting to ask the right questions, which is a key element of the intelligence side, and we're more sophisticated in terms of how we analyze that. So I think as my final thought, it would be that, you know, yes, it is only one source of intelligence, and you should remember that, but actually it's a really key one that has probably not had the degree of scrutiny that it needs in the past, but it can lead into, you know, all the elements elements of uh, of intelligence, all the way from the strategic to the tactical, and as much as anything, it's the in order to. So it's understanding that intent, and I think that's something that economic intelligence can can uh, play a big part in. Yeah, I think understanding the intent is one thing, but actually just considering what the intent might be, and it may not just be an entirely commercial one. I think that's really the point, isn't it, about yeah. this? Yeah. Uh, and then and then the other thing I would add to that is that. In isolation, a series of commercial activities don't appear to be in anything else than a series of commercial activities. But when put together with everything else we can see and explore, as Claire has described, then perhaps the picture becomes clear. So, Claire, an unfair question at short notice, uh, but I do this at, at the end of every podcast. I'm curious to know what you would want the audience to walk away with. If you have one, one thing for them to remember, what would it be? And Sean, of course, you're going to come next. So stand by for more. What's the one thing you'd like the audience to walk away from this conversation with, Claire? I'd like to remind folks that economics and finance, although they might seem um, maybe not directly relevant national security at times, at least for the Chinese government, are very much intertwined with the concepts of security. Xi Jinping has stated recently that security is a precondition for development. And very and within the past year has introduced a new initiative called the Global Security Initiative, which endeavors to provide security for projects um, overseas, ensure stability and security of the Asia Pacific, among other goals. And so with the introduction of this initiative, which is meant to complement the Belt and Road, we're seeing that Chinese projects are frequently being accompanied now with security presence, with paramilitary forces, with private security contractors. In Pakistan, the Pakistani army we've seen has created a special unit that is meant to safeguard Chinese projects. And in Cambodia, we've seen a Chinese company that was seeking to um, develop the Dar Sakor coastline, work with the Cambodian military to clear out villagers. And so this intersection between not just the military, but also paramilitary, private security uh, forces and the security presence growing overseas as a result of Chinese development and Chinese projects, Chinese investment 
is something we're going to be seeing a lot more of. And it's important to understand development and economics, not just in terms of, you know, the money and where it's going, but also what it means for security going forward. Thank you, Claire. Sean? Yeah, just to double down on that, if you think that, you know, every element of national power you know, in its in its greatest definition, right the way from the strategic to the to the tactical, is dependent on the economics of of that country and how it uses its economy as you know as leverage. And so we have to consider that you know in in part of an holistic approach, whether that's within the military, whether it's in wider defence, or whether it's in 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 sort of the more strategic power. Yeah, I agree with all of that, and I think I, I would add for my one takeaway, I wonder if any analysts or decision makers listening to this uh, podcast really understand what has been going on in their own backyards or in their own regions with economic statecraft from countries like Russia and China in the holistic sense. You know, if they could pull back the cover and see what might actually have been the true intent, would they view them differently? I sense that there is a picture waiting to be found there, which might horrify, as I said a few minutes ago. So for me, the one takeaway is, ladies and gents out there listening, have a think about what the uh, various commercial activities going on that on the face of it appear to be, quote, just commercial, might actually be driven by slightly other uh, motivations. Claire, thank you so much for that. A genuinely fascinating topic. And I think you use the word exciting. It is exciting, but it's also somewhat daunting. But nonetheless, thank you so much for your clarity in describing what it is and how you do it. And the best of luck with continuing with it, because it sounds like a fascinating and important topic. Thanks, Harry. This is a lot of fun. Um, glad we were able to shine light on a really emerging topic, I think, the national security yeah, sphere. Absolutely true. Sean, as always, thank you for your help. And uh, for the listener, we look forward to speaking to you again very soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us this week on the world of intelligence. Make sure to visit our website, janes.com slash podcast, where you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, so you'll never miss an episode.